There are many people who are anticipating my book as a call to have a constant and unceasing January 6th. Deneen favors regime change. He wants to violently overthrow the government. I don't want to violently overthrow the government. I, I'm not, I want something far more revolutionary than that. I want to overthrow the party of progress. So I've been, I've been trying to make sense of a new political movement that I see emerging. I guess it's got two sides. There's a more mimetic, wild, heterodox internet side of this thing. And then there's a more buttoned-down, academic, philosophical side of it that's calling itself post-liberalism. You're a political scientist and you're rubbing shoulders with some of these uh, more academic, post-liberal characters. And so I thought it'd be interesting to, to kind of pick your brain and see if we can draw some lines around this thing. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, you've got your finger on a very strong and emergent movement. And, yeah. and really, if you think about liberalism, I mean, this was sort of the default of even the American right, the idea of the Constitution, the founding, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was taken for granted. Uh, and certainly during the Cold War, the anti-communist thing was very much in that vein. Mm. So now what we have is actually a, a rejection of that. So the idea of, of people like Patrick Deneen and why liberalism has failed... Um, and, and other what you might call theocons uh, are, are sort of arguing that that focus on liberating the individual, which comes with John Locke and the Enlightenment and the American founding, was in a way a, a wrong turn. The argument of my book is that liberalism's crisis arises not in spite of liberalism, but because of liberalism, and in, in particular because of the success of liberalism. In order to achieve our liberty, the, the, the effort was uh, undertaken to create institutions and organizations and transform the world in such a way that our liberty would be achieved, especially through the growth of our ability to liberate ourselves from other people and to liberate ourselves from nature. This was mainly then a political, economic, and technological project. This philosophical tradition was never sort of pure in the American setting but has become more and more the defining way in which people think about the nature of liberty. And more and more of our world is shaped around its realization to the point now in which Locke himself wouldn't recognize transgenderism as the fruit of his ideas. And yet you could say as a kind of kernel, as a seed, a kind of, you know, the idea that we're not, we're not bound or limited by something we don't choose. Well, that can extend ultimately to our own body, our own sexuality, things that Locke wouldn't have thought that you could change, but that uh, right. the logic uh, points in that direction. And it doesn't matter which direction you take it, whether it's breakdown of the family, the rise of wokeness, the, you know, all of these things, decline of patriotism, all of these things, they, they kind of link together as stemming from that kind of long history. Mm. So that, I mean, this is a really Huge. big change yeah. from almost the entire way the American right has been used to thinking. It's, a, it's an extreme paradigm shift. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's hard even to think from that perspective because it's so different. Yeah, right? and, and, and for most American conservatives, it still really sticks in the throat, the idea yeah. of like, oh, how can you be against the Constitution and the founders? An awful lot of people who read my last book said, well, you don't love America. You must hate America because you, you don't like liberalism. And here I want to say in front of this really wonderful group of people, many of whom are my former students who might be wondering, does Deneen hate America? 
This is about recovering a deep part of our tradition. And it's not necessarily the tradition you've been taught if you've been taught that the American tradition was always and everywhere about liberalism. That itself was a product of the Cold War. And it served a particular function at that time. But it, it elided or, uh, or hid or shrouded the kind of unwritten constitution of America, how people live their lives. Now, you have different strands. Mm. You have that more Catholic, you know, theocratic, almost, you could almost uh, call it a, a, a theocracy mm. in the extreme, which wants to inject religion into the public sphere. The opportunity to pray, and we could say the norm of praying, is something that we can be committed to as a social and political order. Things like Sabbath laws yeah. um, and the reintroduction of scripture in public schools. These are ideals that we should not be politically indifferent to. As against separating church and state, which is sort of the basis really of arguably of not just Christianity, but certainly of the American Constitution. And who, who would you map as the, the figures in that, in that section of it, the, well, the more radical... Well, I would say people like Adrian uh, Vermeule over at Harvard, uh, Patrick Deneen, Saurabh Amari. You and I can shout that Abraham Lincoln wasn't a horrible racist until we all go blue in the face, and it won't do much to turn the cultural tide. Then you've also got the NatCon, National Conservatism, which has a, you know, there's a Venn diagram and there's, there's an overlap between national conservatism with Yoram Hazoni and Israeli-American. Many people feel that there is actually some kind of um, important constructive good that is achieved by the fact that there are, there are different nations, that there are borders between them, that they have different legal systems, they have different values, and that each one pursues uh, its own uh, interests on the basis of its own traditions, its own way of understanding things. The NatCon approach is really to, to make the nation the center. But according to Hazoni, you've got to have a kind of public religion as part of that national conception. So he's yeah. sort of bringing in that more post-liberal theocon tendency of ha having a public religion, needing a set of ethos that all citizens are inculcated in. So you're going to positively inculcate a, an ideology, a set of virtues into the citizenry. You're going to respect tradition and... Uh, you know, you're going to pass that tradition down, and it's a religious tradition involving faith. There are a few Enlightenment liberals left. Some of them are good friends. And, uh, and they say, no, we just need to roll back the clock 10 or 15 years. It was fine then. And that, that's nice. But 10 and 15 years ago, the, the liberal democracy that America was 10 or 15 years ago is what gave birth to, to woke neo-Marxism. You can't, you can't say that's going to solve the problem. What, what, what we need to look for and what I'm proposing is a, uh, is a countervailing force that can be strong enough to stand up to that. And that means uh, defeating one proposed uh, public philosophy or public religion with another. The argument there is something like, in the absence of a public religion, wokeness has come in. Yes, like so I think the argument would be liberalism creates a vacuum, mm -hmm. which is going to be filled by something. Yeah. And wokeness is what's filling it. Yeah. It's important to distinguish between the anti-woke aspect of this, which, as I said, sort of unites both the Enlightenment liberals and the post-liberals. Yeah. And the kind of older set of issues, which I would argue the ancestors of the post-liberals have been concerned with for some time, but have become more acute. Yeah. So, you know, we can talk about 
low birth rates. We can talk about you know family breakdown, which is also related to particularly uh, working age men not you know dropping out of the labor force or being involved in fentanyl overdoses and deaths of despair, uh, all of which has shot up, you know, so life expectancy has gone down. And then you've got this epidemic of mental health uh, problems, particularly amongst younger people. Mm. You know, the, the theme is one of fragmentation and disorder and individualism leading to antisocial behavior. And all of that stuff, you could say, or much of it has gotten worse. So they're partly addressing that, and then they're also saying, well, because we haven't got any tradition, any virtues, uh, any religion into that vacuum, yeah. into that void is is, flushing, is is coming this new religion. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed these guys are, are putting a suit and spectacles on populism. And by that I mean they're, they're making sense of those movements and trying to turn them into something more philosophically coherent. The Trump voters and the Brexit voters, they, this, you know, vast... Uh, vast number, tens of millions of people, they fall in between liberalism, as I've defined it, and, uh, and, and these racialist groups. They're in, they're in between. There's, a, there's this gigantic space in which you know, most conservatives, people who, who use the term conservative, they're in this space. For, for years, we've been hearing that, no, there's nothing else. There is nothing in that space but authoritarianism. Anybody in that space is, is a deplorable, is a fascist, is a semi-fascist, is on the way to fascism. And you try to say, well, well wait a second. Isn't there you know, something called Anglo-American conservatism, which has a, you know, a, a spectacular tradition going back five, six, seven hundred years? Uh, the classical tradition teaches us, among other things, that... Um, a bad leadership class that's producing pathology after pathology will ultimately only be checked by the rising up of those people who are suffering under those conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be the kind of, I think, evidence of that is in the kind of populist movement we see today, which is often not articulated very well. Uh, it's not uh, well-led, I would submit, but requires the development of a kind of new leadership class, a new elite that will replace not just the people, but will replace the philosophical, theological, metaphysical underpinnings of the current leadership class. There's this concept of regime. I know that Deneen's latest book is called Regime Change. There's a proliferation of these concepts, which is the, the idea that the left and the right political parties in the West operate in a single paradigm and this single party of progress this regime is becoming increasingly tyrannical in spite of the constant oscillation between these two liberal parties one claiming to be economically conservative i.e liberal and one claiming to be socially liberal it was in fact the case that it was a single project that unfolded consistently over time constantly bringing more into being the party of progress and I think this is where you get the most crossover with the dissident internet side of this, because there's a proliferation of concepts that are very similar, but unique. You know, one of the things about this ruling class is that I think it's become very much kind of corrupted by power. You strip away layers and layers and layers and layers and layers, and sooner before you know it, you're like debunking the fucking American Revolution, right? A guy named Curtis Yarvin has... Something he calls the uh, the cathedral. The cathedral is just a short way to say journalism plus academia. The intellectual institutions at the center of modern society. 
just as the church was the intellectual institution at the center of medieval society. The mystery of the cathedral is that all the modern world's legitimate and prestigious intellectual institutions, even though they have no central organizational connection, behave in many ways as if they were a single organizational structure. The pseudo-structure is synoptic, it is one clear doctrine or perspective. It always agrees with itself. And then you've got Oren McIntyre with the total state, um, Mary Harrington, of course, with her idea of the cyborg theocracy. And I heard one recently, the boomer truth regime. Truth regimes always and everywhere find their ideological defenders in the intellectual class. These people disseminate and control the flow of information. They are the handmaidens of power. They help to maintain the status quo by policing the boundaries of what is thinkable. And accordingly, the questioning of a truth regime begins with renegade intellectuals who are able to jam the flow of information with new signals which scramble and question the status quo. At first, the renegade intellectuals will be persecuted as heretics, but as these ideas gain more purchase, generally as they are picked up by artists and disseminated in culture, they start to penetrate the institutions of the status quo. And as these ideas spread to more and more people, the old ideas can no longer serve more and more people question them until, in the end, there is a new truth regime and we get another revolution of elites. Such a revolution took place following the Second World War. The old truth regime, which had been built on notions such as duty, patriotism and respect for the family, came to be seen as old-fashioned and outmoded by renegade intellectuals in the 1950s and 1960s, and so a new truth regime emerged in which there was a new ultimate good and a new ultimate evil. The ultimate good was the idea of unlimited individual self-expression as embodied in the ideals of the 1960s, as John Lennon sung in his song, God, I just believe in me. I don't believe in Bible I don't believe in Tarot I don't believe in Hitler I don't believe in Jesus I just believe in me is the deracinated individual shorn of history, culture, religion, a new man for a new age. Right now we are only seeing the logical next steps in a society in which this idea is the ultimate moral good. Where I think you really see the influence of the internet, by the way, is amongst the young people, is amongst younger males. Yeah. I mean, if I were to say, yeah. why do we see this 
huge gender gap between men and women under age 30, 35 in the English-speaking world. That, I think, is related to where they're getting their news, where they're getting their culture from, yeah. and it's quite different. You know, women are more likely in general to back whatever is the hegemonic community norm. Mm. When it was religion, they were more conservative, and they were. I mean, uh, freshman undergrads in 1970 were, the females were more conservative than the men, by a little bit. Um, but since 2004, it started moving the other way, and now it's just quite a big gap, and women are a lot more to the left. Yeah. And I think they're just reflecting the dominant messages that they're getting in institutional settings. Yeah. Um, whereas the boys are a bit more rebellious, and have always been more contrarian in a way, rebellious, and I think they're getting more from the internet that's countering what yeah. they're receiving in school, university, corporations, so on. Yeah. If you follow that line of thinking, the purple-haired woke woman is the Bible basher of the 50s in some sense. Yeah, like an extreme version of the communal values. Like yeah. It's almost like if you're in a Muslim society or a Christian society, the religious fundamentalist exemplifies communal values. Everyone's pious Muslim. They're a fundamentalist. It's tough to argue against them, but they're exemplifying the values of the system. And yeah. I'd say probably that's what these blue-haired people are doing. They're just exemplifying the values that everyone should have yes. in the system. I think in the, the first-person experience, is they, they are countercultural in some way. They so think they're countercultural. They think they're <laughs> countercultural, and it's, 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 it's a really weird, paradoxical thing. But this whole thing, you know, it, it requires a sort of artificial reality. Like, it's always 1933 yes. with Hitler about to rise to power. We're always back in 1950s Alabama, you know, it, we, or, or one, one step away from slipping back into it. So... By sort of ginning up this artificial atmosphere of white supremacy or misogyny or whatever it is, yeah. um, against that backdrop and that sort of fabricated and invented sort of establishment, yeah. um, you're a rebel, right? But yeah. the reality is, of course, yes. You, you know, this is just a matter of uh, providing a, a backstory for what is effectively an elite actor in yeah. a way, or a representative of an elite value system. Well, this is where I think these guys get an advantage, because they're operating outside of that elite establishment pseudo-reality, and this gives them more freedom to say what they actually think. I have to say that the descriptive enterprise here is, is very compelling. You have the president of Harvard University eliminating social clubs on the basis that they foster an inegalitarian spirit in Harvard. <laughs> which has an admissions rate of about, you know, 4%. This is a kind of, you know, notice this is a it's, a, it's a, it's a form of sort of class warfare, as it were. That wokeism is a way in which elites in our society are using the language and appearance of egalitarianism in an effort to shroud the fact that they, have, they are actually in the process of uh, essentially using these institutions to govern in ways that constitute a kind of tyranny of progress and to actually uh, dismiss the complaints, concerns, uh, and anxieties of those who are not in those institutions of saying, you're backwards. You have, you have no standing in our society to make these complaints. You are representatives of all the various isms that we, in these institutions, uh, represent the opposite of. The question has always got to be, well, as a liberalist, liberal individualist, how are you going to solve these issues around family, around social cohesion, uh, around mental illness, and, and so on, loneliness. What is your panacea, panacea for that? Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's where I think post-liberalism has a stronger hand. 
Uh, and the only question is what variant of it, how it gets absorbed into politics. Yeah, interesting. How do you see that process happening? Well, well, there's several routes. I mean, one is a, a very elite kind of route where you get a, a few intellectuals who attempt to get the ear of special advisors to powerful people and influence policy. Yeah. Now, that's happened on in a number of different ways. I mean, even right now in terms of, you know, Chris Rufo has some influence on the DeSantis people in terms yeah. of higher ed policy. I've been working on an exciting project to take over a public university in Florida called New College and transform it into a classical liberal arts institution. This was something that was kicked off by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He recruited uh, me and a number of other uh, conservative scholars and university administrators uh, to uh, serve on the board of trustees and actually say, look, this institution that has been failing for a number of years can't recruit students, is well known for being a kind of social justice ghetto, recruiting left-wing ideologues and student activists who are poor performers academically and have even poorer performance upon graduation to say, you know what, let's try to save this institution, let's try to turn it around and let's try to rejuvenate it with this new idea um, that actually public universities should reflect uh, the values and the will and the democratic uh, wishes of the public. And of course, uh, anytime that you disturb the force field of the American left, um, everyone starts freaking out. I learned how a fascist like DeSantis could come into power and try to tear apart this state's healthy and functioning institutions with claims that they were full of corruption, while replacing those institutions and local leaders with some of the most corrupt and vile people this planet has to offer. I learned why a fool like DeSantis would try to destroy anyone saying nay to his white supremacist values, his cries to protect children, and homophobic, transphobic rhetoric. She's saying it very clearly. This is what I learned at New College. This is the ideology that I took in. Uh, these are the beliefs that I formed. And, and let's face it, uh, that is very out of step with the people in the state of Florida. Ron DeSantis and Chris Rufer are not really post-liberals in the sense that Deneen and Ramul are. Yeah. They're, they're not aiming for a theocracy. They're very much defending what they see as American constitutional traditions. So that's one route yeah. to, to sort of policy change. Another is sort of a more of a campaign group, somewhat more of a grassroots movement where you're really mobilizing larger numbers of people. Mm. You know, I mean, something like the Brexit vote was, a, was an example perhaps yeah. of that, Tea Party or something like that, where you are involving larger numbers. Now, of course, the left punches above its weight because they're more organized and mobilized uh, because uh, to some degree, you know, more people with high education. But if you look at protest activity, uh, if you look at online posting on Twitter, you know, it's the progressive activist 10% that is punching sort of four or five times above its weight compared yeah. to the population. The right wing equivalent is maybe only two or three times at best yeah. um, and is less urbanized, so therefore less able to mount urban protests. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, out of that third sector is where we get a lot of the, the movements which will become political movements like the Brexit campaign, for example. Well, yeah, I, I would argue that w once you plug the internet into that third sector, it becomes a hell of a lot more powerful. And so my, my, what I'm finding interesting is I've been mapping the, the, the woke uh, kind of constellation of NGOs, and it, it really strikes me as an extremely powerful uh, behemoth. And there's a lot of tech money going into it, and it's, it's, it's this endless kind of rabbit warren of, of NGO, 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 NGO. 
this is interesting to me because now I'm, I'm slowly starting to notice some infrastructure being built on the other side in reaction to that. Is that something that you're, you're noticing as well in that, that third sector is getting stronger on the right um, than it has been in, in, in previous years? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question because there's so many layers, right? So I would say map, isn't the it? world of, you know, podcasts, media, you know, even emerging film, all these sorts of things, that is increasingly, you know, it's an open market that barriers to entry are not what they were because mm. anyone can have a camera and do a podcast. So that is allowing more freedom of, of entry, and that's why the right is doing so well in that space because yeah. the demand is very high. Just the supply was pretty limited, but that's now changing. So, yes. yeah, we have lots of people, you know, obviously the Rogans and the Petersons and then you know, in that space. Yeah. Um, the question then becomes these other institutions. So the foundations, which were set up by very wealthy people, you know, 100 years ago, Ford, Rockefeller, MacArthur, all of these foundations have been taken over by the progressive left. So they control huge amounts of resources now. It's, a, it's about infiltration and takeover and entryism into legacy institutions. Yes. It could be, you know, a newspaper like New York Times, a university like Harvard, it could be so. But these wealthy, you know, well-endowed legacy institutions yes. have been a focus of this what I would call emergent from below activism yeah. um, that has commandeered then huge resources. So if yeah. you control the university sector, you get your people in there. I worked with Paulo Freire for about fifteen years. We did the almost impossible. We started a series in education and cultural studies, through which we get about a hundred people tenure. And we saw that as, a, as, a, as an important kind of political intervention. That's a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, a few wealthy, even if it's Elon Musk, a few wealthy philanthropists can't even come close no. to matching the kind of resources you're getting through student fees or in a corporation if you manage to capture the comms and HR of, of Google, Microsoft, or whatever. This software is able to identify a character's gender and how long they speak and appear on screen. It's made by machine learning engineers from Google and the University of Southern California. To help educators have these anti-racism conversations with their students, Microsoft has partnered with experts across the subject. The newly released Anti-Racism Journey for Educators with Students is a kit of resources grounded in social and emotional learning. It is built by experts in the field of equity and inclusion to support equity and anti-racism work with students. The amount of money that's there is just huge, right? Um, so I think the advantage they have is financial, mm. but then also uh, activism because they're just more, you know, people who are progressive left are just more activist. Partly there's higher education, but it's also, you know, Richard Hanania says they care more. I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but yeah. they do seem to be able to mobilize, especially in urban areas where a lot of the politics is, right? So they, yeah. they have those advantages. Um, yeah. And what you're seeing on the other side is it's the either the podcast realm, the think tank realm. Mm. Um, and of course, there are different routes. There's the more elite route. I think it's kind of personified by Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump. Okay, that's interesting. Right? So DeSantis is these elite networks of, you know, more influential. Maybe this has more of a connection to the podcast world you talk about, or at yeah. least to the sort of brainier end of it. Yeah. And then you have the Trump world, which is all about, you know, almost this cult pro wrestler relationship, yeah. and it's about rallies, and it isn't about, you know, post-liberalism and about, yeah. you know, cynical theories and all these kind of complicated uh, critiques, but it's all about, you know, just rah, rah, we hate the Democrats, right? That, that, that's <laughs> very interesting, because it's hard to pin down an ideology there.
the online spaces, this new ecosystem matters more for younger people, mm. for highly educated people. I think we wouldn't want to underestimate the role of cable television, Fox News, for example, particularly for those older voters, which are the, you know, the backbone of the Brexit movement here, the mm. backbone of the uh, Trump vote as well. So mm. I think the Internet is more important for younger, mm. a younger and emerging set of voters. And it will be, right? So, yeah, as those younger younger voters get older, then they'll squeeze out what we're talking about here with the with the older kind of cable network. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, so I think, for example, I think that the online people sort of, I don't think social media made Trump's election, if I, if okay. I were to say. I don't think that's why Trump got elected okay. or why Brexit happened. Yeah. Um, I think it might be why the alt-right might have had its rise and fall. You know, the, these smaller edge movements yeah. are very much internet movements. But it is interesting to consider what might be around the corner if, if that's where the youth are headed. We can rehabilitate concepts that the boomer truth regime has suppressed or put so far out of mind as to be completely unthinkable. For this, you need a new language shorn of historical baggage, a new way of framing things that cannot be reduced to what happened in the 1940s, a new paradigm that leaves the old one shattered and toothless ashes in the dustbin of history. And once this has been achieved, the mental trap of the boomer truth regime will be over. Now get out. You're in the middle of it in many ways. You're writing about it. You're rubbing shoulders with some of the figures. You've written something recently that I read, which was why I'm a liberal national conservative. So you don't fall on the post-liberal, but maybe you're, you're, you're toying with some of the, the, the ideas on that side. Where, where are you standing? Well, yeah, I think, I, I guess liberal national conservative is where I am. So yeah. I'm sort of, I, I do think we need to stick with the procedural liberalism um, constitutional rights, you know, the role of, of courts uh, in defending those rights. I'm in favor of all of that. I also see the importance of having community structures, community norms, uh, having traditions that you try and develop and, and nurture and protect over time without being trapped by those traditions. Yeah. So I do have certain, certain elements of, of post-liberalism, I guess you could say. I would just call it conservatism. Um, and but I do think, for example, that I don't believe in in the sacrosanct nature of every institution in terms of autonomy. I'm quite okay with government at regulating, um, <clears throat> particularly public institutions, defunding things that are not uh, backed by the, the demos. So, for example, while I would protect the academic freedom of somebody to teach critical race theory in a public university. Uh, I think it's legitimate for the government to say we won't fund that. Yeah. But on the other hand, I differ from the, the true kind of Yoram Hazoni position, which yeah. is that we need to inject public values and public religion into these institutions. My view is what I'd rather see is actually uh, neutrality, so political neutrality as a, a principle across public sector, public service bodies. So that's my approach as opposed to what some people, including to some degree Chris Rufo, is like, no, we have to inculcate our set of virtues. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm not as much into that. Yeah, okay. So you're confident that that's enough right now? Because I think that uh, over the years I've looked at how the institutions are, are operating and the orthodoxy that they're operating within, too little, too late maybe. I think it's very important to understand that right-of-center political parties have done next to nothing. Yes. They have been complicit in all of this. Yeah. So we've had almost no pushback, yes. no attempt 
to test out what it would look like to say, we're going to enforce institutional neutrality across the public sector, the entire public sector. I mean, this is really what the politics of DeSantis is about. In reality, what this concept of DEI has been is to attempt to impose orthodoxy uh, on the university, and not even necessarily in the classroom, but through the administrative apparatus of the university itself. Uh, the whole experiment with DEI uh, is coming to an end in the state of Florida. We are eliminating the DEI programs. You have to actually, you know, purge certain sectors of the bureaucracy. You have to close down certain bureaus. You have to set up new ones. You have to staff it with your people. You have to get a pipeline of people, which you actually have to cultivate these cadres to come in. All of that takes organization and focus. But I think that's how, that's how the left has done it to some degree to some degree. And, and so I think until we've gone through that and failed, I don't want to write liberal democracy off. The key is these issues have to become higher profile, and they are becoming higher profile. Once they're high profile for voters on the right, they start to decide elections. And these issues all break two to one in terms of public opinion against. I mean, this is all very unpopular stuff. So you just need... Uh, that, that seems yeah, obvious. Right. It has seemed obvious for quite some time. Do you think the reason that the right-wing politicians haven't moved into it is because they're scared of the, the, the elite media institutions? Well, I think it's two reasons. I mean, one is they don't know the arguments and they're scared of the media. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely a big motivating factor. But, but secondly, I think also is they don't care as much about it because they've been sort of influenced by lobby groups around, say, you know, the, the strong lobbies in the U.S. on the right are, you know, guns, abortion, for example, and low-tax donors. You know, that's where the pressure's coming from, and, and also where their ideas, a lot of their ideas were all about cutting back the state. You know, that's all they really know, or perhaps a bit of religion. Yeah. Um, they, they aren't really to grips with what's going on in the schools, what's going on in the corporations. Um, and so they, they, they haven't cared. I mean, if they cared, they wouldn't do what they've done. And so I think part of this is, you know, I, I they use the example in Canada, they've just elected in Alberta, which is the kind of Texas of Canada, supposedly most conservative province. Um, they've elected a, a conservative government, and the first thing they're doing is putting out their Pride Month, LGBTQ+, oh, great, we have to be more inclusive. You know, this is not an issue they care about at all. It's yeah. All they care about is the oil patch and their donors. Yeah. So... It's partly about deselecting or primarying out that sort of more strictly social liberal, economic liberal type yeah. of, of person from these parties and getting in place people that are more of the DeSantis ilk. Yeah. And the more you can do that, the more pressure there will be. And that'll, that'll then create a spiral where the voters will expect it, the politicians will be held to account, the media will hold them to account, uh, and then that will create the pressure needed I think, anyway, to drive through these reforms. So already now, in, it's already mattered a little bit even in British politics. You know, people are critical of the Tory government for not doing enough on school indoctrination, for example. You know, in Scotland, the gender issue derailed Nicola Sturgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all, these are all signs that, as well as the DeSantis election, the Glenn Youngkin election in Virginia, these are all signs that these issues are starting to emerge now as... It's not just a counterculture, it's moving into the political establishment. Right. This is where I guess I come back to the internet where um, podcasts uh, and that whole alternative media are having an impact, I yeah. think, now. Is they're starting to shape the agenda and they're starting to shape what voters are looking to. And that's actually going to be very important going forward. I actually think these issues are going to be absolutely 
central to the electoral alignments that we see going forward, much more so than they've been, actually. Oh.